The sermon text this morning is Romans 8, verses 13 through 39. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, Romans 8, verses 13 through 39. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we Hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, No, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, these words that you've given us through the Spirit are some of the most precious promises that bring hope to us when we're in this in-between time of suffering before the coming of glory. God, I pray that you help us, that you be gracious to us to uh, feast upon the riches of what's in this text. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last uh, couple weeks, uh, we've been looking at the truth of the goodness of God and how from the very beginning, Satan's first move to destroy the human race was to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. Uh, That's what took place in the garden. Our lives crumble under our feet as we doubt the goodness of God. And yet, it's difficult to believe the goodness of God in light of living in a fallen world where there's sin, suffering, and death. Last week, we looked at how David, even in the midst of like the worst consecutive years of his life that are beyond what we can imagine, family uh, just in disarray because of David's sin and because of the sins of his sons. And he's even on the run from his son Absalom that's trying to kill him so he can steal his kingdom from him. And yet David said in Psalm 4 that he has more joy knowing that God hears his prayer while he's running in the wilderness away from his son who's trying to kill him, he has more joy that when they, the world, when their grain and wine abound, when their circumstances are going good, he says, tonight, I can have more joy than them. David knew something about the goodness of God in the midst of his suffering. And this morning, we're looking at, in my mind, one of the most life-securing chapters I know of in the Bible. Uh, Sovereign grace has existed for eight years. We've preached through book after book of the Bible. We've never preached through Romans yet. And the reason why is I don't want to preach Romans when I'm still a novice. I know the riches that are here. I want to grow more in my understanding of Scripture, in my ability to preach. And yet, I can't wait for the time to share truths like this. Because we'll suffer this week. And so, this little mini series of three weeks is essential 
Because of what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And when we doubt His goodness is when we run to idols. Where we run to things that cannot satisfy us. And I can tell you, when we do preach the Romans, we're going to take these verses, are probably going to take two months. So you're just getting the flyover. The quick glance to go this week, dive into the riches of what's here. So Romans 8 sits in the middle of one of the most amazing gospel presentations we have in the Scripture. What's already been spoken is that man is under sin, deserves the just wrath of God, man has no goodness in and of himself, and that salvation doesn't come from the law. A person can't be good enough to earn their salvation, but righteousness has shown up not by keeping the law, but in a person of Jesus Christ who kept the law and the person who trusts in Christ by faith receives as a gift Jesus' righteousness in their place. And Jesus pays the price for their sins. You can read about that in the first three chapters of Romans. And then he works out in chapter 4 how we're saved by faith. How Old Testament believers were saved by faith. And that when people trusted God's goodness in forgiving their sins, He counted it to their account as righteousness, even though they weren't righteous. And then in chapter 5, He starts a section of saying, now just consider the results, the hope we have in the gospel. Here's what he says in Romans 5.1. Therefore, in light of everything that's just been said, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we've also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a tremendous two verses. Because we've been justified by faith, we're at peace with God. We have access into this grace in which we stand now, and we rejoice in hope. So in chapter 5, he begins to unpack the hope believers have. In chapter 5... Verses 12 through 21, he shows how through Christ, Adam, original sin, is taken care of in Christ. The second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. And so we see his triumph over Adam's sin. And then in chapter 6, we see the triumph of God's grace over the power of sin. When you live by faith in your righteousness in Christ, you can actually begin to kill sin in your life. 
in chapter 7. I want you to look at verse 18. Uh, In chapter 7, Paul lays out this argument. The law does not have power in it to change or to change you or to kill sin. (laughs) In fact, he says, when the law comes, because of indwelling sin in your flesh, your sin in your flesh is so wicked that it grabs a good thing, the law of God, and even sins against it more. Uses it as a springboard so that sin can increase. So God gives us perfect law, and yet that law has no power over this indwelling sin that's inside a human being. So we read in in chapter 7, verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul says, I look at the law, I delight in it, I know it's good, and yet I can't keep it. There's no power for me to keep it. But he he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then here's what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law can't do it. In fact, our sin grabs the law, increases our sin. And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So chapter 7 is, so what's the implication here? What does Christ do for the person who can't keep the law? He gives us power where the law never had power. That's what chapter 8 is about. That power comes through the Spirit of Christ that lives inside us. And so, chapter 8, verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 starts with this, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 8 ends with, you'll never be separated from the love of Christ. Chapter 8 is about the assurance of your salvation and God's goodness in the midst of suffering and fighting sin that isn't yet all the way gone. Think of these. There is now there no condemnation. What is condemnation? Bearing the wrath of God for all eternity in hell. 
the presence of God's wrath. That's hell. There is therefore no hell for those who are in Christ Jesus. The presence of God's wrath for all eternity is not there for those who are in Christ Jesus, but rather you'll never be separated from the love of Christ. Never. Not on this earth, not in eternity. Is God good in the midst of suffering? Romans 8 is our chapter. Yeah, but I keep struggling with sin. Yeah, read Romans 8. Romans 8 says you haven't conquered sin yet. Totally. But it's coming. But you're in the process of fighting sin. Yeah, but my circumstances are difficult. Yeah, the means of God bringing you to glory, the path of glory runs through suffering. If you're on the path of suffering, you're on the right path. That's what Romans 8 says. God's good. You have to zoom out and see where you're at in life. The lie of the devil flourishes when our theology stinks. When we forget where we are. When we forget what Jesus said. Did Jesus said you wouldn't, you wouldn't suffer in this world? Did He ever make that promise? He never made that promise. In fact, He said you're going to suffer first, then comes glory. Just like it was for me. He says that's how it'll be for you. So, that situates situates us a little bit in the book of Romans. And we want to zoom in now in verse 13. And the main challenge of the sermon is consider the goodness of God even in suffering. Satan's going to come and say, he's not good, look at suffering. And I'm saying, see the goodness of God in suffering. Point one, suffer well knowing the hope of glory. Look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. The Christian life is a life of dying to yourself, which means you wake up every morning and you make your selfish, sinful desires suffer. It's a war against the remaining sin that's in your life. Part of suffering in Romans 8, Paul's saying, is when the Spirit of God lives inside you, there's a war of suffering against the old man that is being put to death by the Spirit. And then he says in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What an amazing promise. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What if in the midst of suffering you can know you're a child of God? What if you can have assurance that your salvation is secure 
in Christ. Well, what he says is, when you have the Spirit of God inside yourself, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that term cry is actually uh, an offensive Greek word, which has to do with a desperate scream. It's not like, oh, Daddy, how's it going? It's when you're in a fearful situation in this earth and you don't know if you're going to survive, you say, Father! Father! And yet, those who don't have the Spirit of God say, Oh my God! I'm a... I like following storms, watching storms. I watch a lot of storm chasing videos. Most storm chasers are not people of faith, is is what I found. But you can tell which ones are when a bolt of lightning almost strikes them. Both sets of people speak religious language. Every time a lightning bolt about hits them. Oh my God. Every now and then. Oh Father. There's a difference. When the Spirit of God is inside you, the way you know you're a Christian, the way the Spirit shows you is how you cry out in the midst of suffering. Those who are sons of God cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs of God. That doesn't mean we get all the stuff God gets. That means we get God. God is our inheritance. If we're sons of God, we get God. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. How do we get God? We get God because we have Christ. And then he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may obtain also, that we may also be glorified with him. So your suffering is actually the promise that you're going to be glorified with him. If you're suffering in this world saying, Father, help me, or if you're suffering in this world saying, man, I keep fighting this sin. It's just a battle every day. I get up and I have to fight this. There's glory coming. The Spirit of God lives in you. The suffering is the evidence you're on the right path. Satan says your suffering is the evidence that God doesn't love you. He only lies to us and hurts us. We have to know and understand Romans 8 if we're not going to believe the lie when your worst day becomes reality. Suffer well knowing the hope of glory. Do you know the hope of glory. (laughs) I love what he says next. He says, for I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. He says, let's put them in a scale. He says, no, that'd be stupid. You only put things in the scale that are close. You don't put a giant boulder on a scale and a feather on the other side. He says, it's not worth it. It's not worth putting them in the scale. The devil comes and says, God's not good. Look at the suffering you have right now. And Paul says, it's not a worthy comparison. Don't you know about the glory that's going to be revealed to you? The way he said it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, for this light and momentary affliction. Now let's just admit, you kind of want to punch Paul when he says things like that. Oh, what are you calling this? A light and momentary affliction? Let me lay out my life. Let me lay out my suffering. Let me lay out the death that I've experienced with family members. Let me lay out this horrible battle with sin. Light and momentary affliction. Life in a fallen world's hard. But if you're going to compare, here's what he says. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Light, momentary, eternal weight. So that the light and momentary, which feels really hard if we're honest, is not for no reason. In fact, it's actually doing something. It's preparing an eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed to us when? When Christ returns. We should not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon us, as Peter says. We need to know when everything gets better. It gets better when Christ comes and returns. Right now we're in a battle. We're being saved right now. Our sanctification is up and down, but on a trajectory more up over the long term. But it's hard. How great is this glory that He gives us? Here's what He does. He, he illustrates in verse 19. He's like, you, you got to see this. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation can't wait for the revealing of the sons of God. You don't know who the sons of God are right now? When Christ returns, it's going to be revealed. And creation can't wait for that day. That's when glory comes. And here's why they can't wait. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Creation never sinned. Man sinned and creation was cursed. Genesis 6, 3, 16 through 19. Adam and Eve sinned and the creation was cursed, subjected to futility. Futility means that it has not totally fulfilled the purpose for which it's been made. Death and decay is what we see. And yet, that's not the 
purpose of creation. It's supposed to flourish. But when the sons of God are revealed, there will no, be no more thorns. We can't imagine what creation does when it's no longer subjected to futility. How great is glory? All creation eagerly waits. It's like a child can't wait to go to Disney World. That's maybe not the best illustration. And a better illustration maybe would be, I remember going to the Boundary Waters with men in our church, uh, canoed in about five hours. We just get there, it starts downpouring rain, and it rains for like two days straight. Downpour for two days. Now, I'm not the best camper in the world, but when it's pouring rain, it really stinks, especially when you want to fish and do all this stuff. It's downpouring rain. I could not wait for these men who were much tougher than me to finally say, let's go home. I'm sitting in this tent saying, can you guys please quit subjecting me to this futility? Can we decide to go? Finally, they did, and we made it back to our car, and the sun came out. That's the idea, the illustration that he gives. And then he says, not only is creation can't wait for glory, but he, in verse 23, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation's groaning, waiting for glory. And if you have the Spirit of God in you, you're groaning. You know you're not meant for the world the way it is now. You're waiting for better days. The way Paul says this in Galatians 6.14 is he says, far be it from me to boast in, in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, once I knew Jesus and knew the promise of glory, this world can't satisfy me anymore. Only God can. That's why the believer prays, Lord Jesus, come. We're waiting. So if you're groaning inside, saying, this is hard. I can't wait till I don't sin anymore. I can't wait till there's no death anymore. That's because the Spirit of God is inside you, telling you the truth. Creation's groaning. The Spirit of God in you is groaning, illustrating how great the glory is going to be for us in Christ. And then in verse 24, he says, for in this hope we were saved. Uh, a good way to understand this is that in our salvation in Christ, salvation comes with a tremendous amount of hope. That's one of the byproducts of being found in Christ. And then he says, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He's saying, you don't see the glorification of your bodies yet. 
you still see a battle with sin. You don't see the earth that's been set free from futility, the, the curse that's on it yet. So, Christian, we're in this time frame when we're waiting patiently, trusting the goodness of God, knowing where we're at in time. So, suffer well knowing the hope of glory. Second, suffer well knowing the Spirit prays for you. This is an incredible promise. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, I don't think it's just general weakness here. I think the specific thing Paul's pointing at is actually in our weakness in our prayer life. The Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words that He who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of suffering and you're like, man, this is difficult. I don't even know what to pray for. Seems like I could pray for this, but then I don't know if that's good. Maybe I should pray for this. I don't have the wisdom to even know what the will of God is. But here's the comfort, Christian. When you don't even know how to pray, the Spirit prays perfect prayers for you. And God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and He says yes to every one of those prayers. God doesn't say yes to all of our prayers. He answers all of our prayers. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes wait, sometimes that's a bad prayer, repent of it. But when the Spirit prays for us, He says yes every time. Well, I don't know if I'm going to last. I don't know if I'm going to survive. How can I know that I'm going to be saved? Good news. Every one of the Spirit's prayers is answered and He prays perfectly according to the will of God on your behalf. Unbelievable promise. What's the result of the Holy Spirit praying perfect prayers for us? Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Here's the thing. If the Spirit of God prays perfect prayers for you and God always says yes to the Spirit, all things, the present suffering you're in is perfectly working good for you. Perfectly working good for you. For those who love God, it's not saying you better love God so He does this. For those who love God, it's His way of saying for believers. For those who trust Christ, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to His purpose. This text is pointing us forward to the consummation of our salvation. We're going to see in a moment that the good that He wants for us is that we're conformed into His image. So point three in your notes is suffer well knowing that all things work for your good for those who are called. 
What does it mean to be called according to His purpose? This is not a general call. This is an effectual call. There's an invitation to the whole world to come to Christ. And then there's the effectual call of God that when God gives that call, they come to Christ. This is the effectual call. It's illustrated in the next chapter in verse 11, Romans 9:11, when he's talking about Jacob and Esau, when he says, though they were not born and had not done anything either good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of uh, works, but because of him who calls. Why did Jacob receive the promise? Because God called him and that didn't have anything to do with him hearing a call. And coming to it had to do with his purpose before he was even born. Ephesians 11.1 says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the, our testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose. We're called, God calls us with a purpose, and it's effectual. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Corinthians one twenty six says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring things that are. When you got saved, you were not and you heard the call of God and you believed, not because you got smarter than everyone else, but because God brought into being that which was not. It's the effectual call of God. Romans 4.16 says this, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adhere the one who adheres to the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, as it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. That's the call. God works all things together for good. Of course he does. If he called you and started it, it's going to work for good. Point four in your notes is suffer well, knowing that what good is and when it began. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. For those whom he foreknew. Now the word foreknew is actually really important. Uh, at first glance it might seem for those whom God foreknew and saw who would do good things, that's who God predestined. That's not, that's not what the word means. Foreknew means for those whom God set his covenant love on, 
beforehand. Let me give you an example. Amos, his call to be a prophet, says, you only have I known from all the families of the earth. He's speaking to Israel. through, And he's saying, you only I have known. Well, God didn't know about the other people in the nations? Yes, that's not what he means. He says, you only have I known intimately in a choosing type way. Abraham knew his wife. What does that mean? That means he was intimate with her. For those whom God foreknew beforehand made a covenant to set his love on. That's the idea. Um, I could give you a lot more examples, but we don't have uh, time. For those whom he foreknew, set his love on beforehand, he also predestined for what? To be conformed into the image of his son. Foreknowledge has to do with God choosing to set his love upon you. Predestination has to do with God choosing you for a purpose. And the purpose is to be conformed into the image of God. Into the image of His Son. So what's the good promise to you in Romans 8.28? All things are going to work together for your good. Your good is being conformed in the image of Christ. Did you know God created you? Image bearers. Sin came and... uh, ruined our image-bearing characteristics so that we can not in the fullness of light bear the image of God. We all bear the image of God, believers and non-believers, but when sin came in, we begin to reflect the serpent in a lot of ways by listening to him. But in Christ, God promised to do good, to restore to us the purpose of our life which is to glorify Him. To bring His glory all over the earth by imaging Him. So the purpose of our Him predestining, predestining us is to be conformed into the image of Christ. And those whom He predestined, He also called. It's an effectual call. Those whom He called, He justified. It's a done deal. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, glorification hasn't come yet, but he puts it in the past tense because it's as good as done. Here's his argument. Christian, here's how you know God's good. Because there's glory waiting for you. The Spirit's praying perfect prayers for you. Everything that's happening right now is working for your good. How could that be? John Piper says Romans 8.28 is like a fortress that Christians can run into. Huge. He talks about skyscrapers in Minneapolis. He says the taller the skyscraper, the bigger, the, the further deep the foundation has to be laid. Well, what foundation does this promise stand on? Here's the foundation. Before you were ever born, before you ever existed, God set his love on you. Before you were ever born, born, God predestined you. He predestined to call you to be conformed and in the image of Christ and it's as good as done. What's going to break that chain? 
security in Christ. And when the Spirit bears witness that we're children of God and this chain can't be broken because it started before we were even born, what kind of hope do we have? And then he says, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. There's so much here. Great verses to just go back to this week and meditate on. Your fifth point is suffer well by asking the right questions. Verse 31 through 39, I think is a culmination that started in chapter 5. This is his, let me tie up all the use ends by asking rhetorical questions. Let's consider the hope we have because Jesus justified us by faith. So let's just let this be a worship time. Like I said, we could dive into this. We don't have time, but let's read it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's what he says. The most valuable thing to God is his only son. The hardest thing for him to do would be to give his only son for rebels and sinners, people that are flipping him off and saying, I don't want you in my life. But God did that for you. If he did that for you, how will he not also bring about total goodness for your life? If he did the hardest thing, of course all the other things are going to work for your good. You see the, you see the reasoning? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? <laughs> if this started before you're born, who's going to come bring a charge against you? It is God who justifies. Is there another judge out there that says guilty or not guilty? No. Well, God elected before the foundation of the earth that you'd be justified in Jesus Christ. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Did you know that not only is the Spirit praying perfect prayers to the Father on your behalf, but the Son, this is in the present tense, is interceding. There's never a moment of your life when your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, at the right hand of God, is not interceding on your behalf. When the devil says, He's angry with you and doesn't want anything to do with you and you can't come to Him before your sin, you can say, that's a lie. My Lord's at the right hand of God and He never stops interceding for me. And He can do it because He paid the sin. It's gone. Amazing promises. And then He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Shall distress, shall persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Now look at verse 37. Not from... 
But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God never promised to snatch us out of the circumstance or the trial. But he says in the midst of the suffering, on the path of suffering, in them you can be conquerors. Weak people can conquer once they're out of them. But those who have Christ and know they can never be separated from him, they can be conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, does that encompass everything? Death or life? It does. Angels nor rulers, no spiritual power can snatch you. Nor things present nor things to come. Does that encompass everything? nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. (laughs) He's just saying, how can I say this over and over and over and over and over again? Nothing, 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 nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, our Lord. Neither depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. If Jesus quit loving you, you could despair. But he never does. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Right in the middle of the trial, all the promises that are eternal, all the promises that have foundations are true for you. My prayer is is that you know God is good that you can see it by what he's done for you, that you know where you're at, that you'll be patient in waiting for Christ in your suffering. Father, I pray that we would glory in these promises, that we would see the fortress these promises are for us. God, I pray no one here would attempt to stand before you on judgment day in their sin. But that everyone here would be standing before you on judgment day in Christ, totally secure, every sin paid for, and glory waiting, the redemption of our bodies, this body that's dying, to live forever again, God. Pray that we would all know that hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.